And now we begin the Seattle Sucks Thanksgiving Pageant Spectacular with a traditional reading from Bryn Roth. Today, we're reading Thanksgiving, a celebration. In 1609, the year of our Lord, the people of Jamestown had gotten quite bored. Their fields remained bare, with no work to be done, and with the first November frost, winter had come. Corpses in the wells, Gatorade for the crops. They had done everything right, yet still were quite lost. So nothing was stirring inside hearth and home, but hunger was growing as they became skin and bone. They had eaten the horses, the dogs, and the cats. They had eaten the vermin, the mice, and the rats. Looking quite delish, Governor Percy would swoon, of making a dish of a scab or a wound. Then young Josiah cut himself on a nail. Let's lap up the blood before it gets stale. We have eaten it all, dogs, cats, and horses. Now let's go to the graveyard and dig up some corpses. A big toe from Joe, some spleen from Eugene, a fleshy nose from Rose, all made delicious cuisine. Percy pats his belly. I don't mean to be a glutton. Then he leaned forward, but I'm loving Karen's mutton. With a wince and a groan, the Powhatan peeked in. These people are savages, but at least we're upwind. Their bellies now full and joy in their heart. At Jamestown Colony, dogs, cats, and corpses all do their part to bravely create a great Christian nation and to bring this new land civilization. The end. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Gosh, it sure is lonesome being by yourself on Thanksgiving. I have nothing and no one. Whoa, was that a wave that just sent Nyad a rolling under my feet? Or could it be... What's that? Hey, hi, Greg. Greg. Oh, uh, well, hi, guys. What are you doing here? You got room for two more on the boat? Sh sure, come in. I've got the fire going, and there's plenty of vitamin R and cherry Coke in the fridge. Grand! Me and Colin were just thinking about how Thanksgiving is a time for friends, family, and podcasting. Well, I think of Thanksgiving as... Uh, Settler colonial fantasia that serves to whitewash the genocide of the Native American. And I should point out that we're floating above occupied indigenous land that was dug out and flooded to create this federal waterway. Well, welcome back to the Seattle Sucks Thanksgiving Pageant Spectacular! Tonight on the Pageant Spectacular, we have some very special content to help you pass the hours stuck somewhere with your family or, alternatively, alone. 
we've got a very special roundtable discussion of the Gates Foundation, a stop at Collins Game Corner, a special call from a friend overseas, some live storytelling from Greg. Stay tuned for all this and more after this message. A special Seattle Sucks presentation for the 20th anniversary of the WTO Uprising. Battle in Seattle. Available only to Patreon subscribers for your Thanksgiving weekend time kill. A once in a season movie review podcast episode with the three lovable hosts you stand, Greg, Brian, and Colin. But that's not all. We assembled a star-studded panel that includes Alex, disgraced former host of Seattle Sucks, Andrew Hedding, PhD candidate in Battle in Seattle Studies, Tommy Swenson, small business tyrant at the Beacon Cinema, Maddie, co-captain of the venerable Downtown Seattle Association, and Bryn Roth, voted most hated movie theater audience member. <laughs> Coming this week, only to Patreon. Welcome back to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city we love. You've been enjoying a specially curated collection of content we've designed to spark joy this Thanksgiving. <laughs> as, we, as we know, many of you face a long sojourn back to the Shire the suburban hinterlands, or maybe even exotic overseas locales like Austin, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and we just want to make sure you get your entertainment, capital E, entertainment. Uh, and so, Brian, you've put in a ton of work. Um, since this is Thanksgiving, I mean, there's no bigger, greater person on earth that we should thank for their giving than Bill Gates, right? Yes, this is a time <laughs> of giving, for us, but for Bill Gates, every day is a day of giving. So we, of course, sit at the in the home base of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a foundation of pure good in the world. They're just on the other side of the hill. Just on the other side of the hill. Bill Gates, in the year uh, 1999, pledged that he would donate his vast fortune <laughs> towards alleviating poverty and doing good in the world. And since then, his fortune has only grown by 80 to 90%. <laughs> I, know, I feel like we've talked on the... We've um, presented some theories previously on this show about the particular timeline... The flight logs. The, the, or <laughs> the origin story of the Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um you know, because uh, it's just like a guy with a lot of money was like, gosh, I should give this away. Right, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, out of just the goodness of his heart and potentially to get a rather troublesome monopoly suit dropped by the federal government. <laughs> um, you know, no big deal. But uh, we thought, you know, we had threatened before that we'd have a little bit of a, a dive into the Gates Foundation and, you know, we pulled up a little bit of research on his uh, wonderful philanthropic work, the philanthropic work in the fields of education at home, mm -hmm. medicine abroad, Ooh. and a whole teaser for the end, his uh, media ventures. Oh, <laughs> I like it. Sounds good. 
How yeah. prominently does feces feature in all of these? <laughs> Heavily. <Colin. laughs> Heavily. Fantastic. So, this is Seattle sucks after all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where it isn't there, we just edit it right <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, one of the things that probably people don't understand is that uh, a huge chunk of Bill Gates' philanthropic money goes into changing the education system right here at home in America, you know, reshaping our public schools in an image that appeals to Mr. Gates, who we should note is neither an education expert, <laughs> nor did he attend public school, huh. nor did his children attend public school. Hmm. But he's very interested in the public school your children <laughs> go to. Um, yeah, it's it's generally not understood or, I guess, appreciated by people that... It's, it's slowly starting to be. Yeah, I think so. But that basically, the for the last 20 years, the entire like public education agenda in the United States has really been set by three foundations that work in concert with one another to cre- or to create this uh, new education system that is you know what the billionaires envision right and that the Gates Foundation is the largest donor to this uh, the Eli uh, Edith Broad Foundation another large one and of course the Walton Family Foundation mm. uh, of Walmart fame. Uh, very interested in what your kids are up to, right? Um, and what they do is they attack it in a variety of ways. One is they create academies where they bring people from the private sector, people who've excelled at business, right, uh, to a rigorous superintendent's academy, which is held in L.A., uh, where they do a, uh, a very intensive six-weekend class on how to be a superintendent and how to run a school system. And so after this, they can astral project. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. yes. Okay. And uh, they're distributed from this very intensive academy uh, to then run uh, some of the largest school districts in the country. So this is the Broad Academy, uh, Superintendent's Academy. Uh, They currently have graduates running uh, 1% of the school districts in America, which doesn't sound like much. Until you realize they're overseeing more than a quarter of all public education, publicly wow. educated students wow. in the that's, country. That's terrifying. Yeah. And the basic premise is, is these people run their businesses so well, surely they can run a school system. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all that waste, you know, well, public this, education. The whole, um, <clears throat> the whole uh, you know, education reform movement and uh, especially the sort of charter school angle to it is like this extreme um, it's the largest like possible like manifestation of this government should run like a business kind of shit or or the just privatization it's like it's the thing that that is applicable in every zip code in America that you can do which which is why uh, which is what explains like the appeal of it to your average uh, rich person or investors because mm-hmm. you're talking about potentially opening up this enormous market that is you know has been previously had business largely shut out of it yeah maybe we can uh explore the cynical reasons <laughs> for why they <laughs> might be doing this i wouldn't want to put that on on bill though uh but i think the the one thing that's really interesting too is I mean, we should ask the questions like, why should the Walton family, again, no history with, you know, no uh, education and like, you know, actually educating people or anything like that, or the Gates family or whatever, why should they be making these choices? And the general 
consensus does seem to be that, well, if they're good at business, that means they're good at everything, right? And it's it's very um, uh, prosperity gospel kind of American Protestant shit, yeah. right? Of uh, they got wealthy, therefore they're chosen, therefore they're extremely smart. It's like how you're, you know... Uh, very dumb, like, nephew uses, like, Einstein quotes for everything. So, like, dude, he's really good at physics. He must know about everything else. Um, And uh, Bill Gates is the sort of self-appointed person. And nothing sort of showed this more than his big first initiative, which was his small schools initiative, where uh, in the early aughts, Bill came up with this idea all on his own. There's no research backing it up. He didn't really have any sort of personal theory behind seemingly a hunch that the problem with schools in large cities was that the schools themselves were too large and they should be broken up into smaller subsections of schools, right? Yeah. Now, this is not to be confused with large classrooms versus small classrooms. He literally just thought the size of the school generally was too large. (laughs) It's just too big to manage for one principal. Yeah, so he thought, let's break it up and we will take the administrative staff and quadruple it We'll keep the teaching staff the same for the most part, and uh, and we'll jam the kids into these weird schools within schools. And um, I had a friend who actually taught at one of these schools in Brooklyn where uh, this school, uh, it was at a time when Park Slope was really heavily gentrifying, and this school, high school included kids from the Flatbush side of Prospect Park who were predominantly black. And kids from Park Slope, which is now uh, we all know as the podcast corridor, <laughs> podcast <laughs> district of Brooklyn. But kids, but kids from Park Slope who are probably white and have more money, right? And uh, when she know it, when they split the school up into I believe three smaller schools, uh, all the black kids ended up in two wildly underfunded schools within the building, and all the Park Slope white kids ended up in one very well funded <laughs> school in the building, right? And so of course, not only did you know, uh, outcomes not get better in the school, they got worse, right? Um, And this was basically across the board what was happening with this initiative that Bill Gates, you know, he, you know, he dumped, I think, $350 million in this initiative. He got, you know, hundreds of schools to do this. And around 2008, 2009, he just said, oh, I guess that didn't work. My bad. And wiped his hands free, (laughs) clean, and walked away, right? Damn. And the damage that they had done was irreversible for the most part. You know, switching, you, you can't just overnight switch these schools back. Well, not if you don't have a foundation paying mm-hmm. out the millions of dollars in an initiative to do that, including the lobbying and the whatever. So this, the damage was done, you walk away, and it's just, you know, mm-hmm. and now it's entropy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, is that you created, again, like I said, the main thing it did was it ballooned the administrative, uh, uh, fa- or the administrative, like, sort of workforce, right, or tier. Weird that and... business people who think they're good at everything really just, <laughs> um, like, lard up management and yeah. bring in fucking bullshit management uh, uh, <laughs> wisdom. Yeah, uh, you know... It is kind of interesting that one uh, thing East Germans complained about when West Germany and East Germany were brought back together was the amount of bureaucracy in West Germany, which is <laughs> a sort of funny irony because of how we think of the Cold War here. But but yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. The problem is that administrative sort of tier now, it's not like they're just going to say, oh, yeah, like 
three quarter of a three quarters of us don't need to be here, right? Like they're now fighting to keep their positions in this school. So essentially, he created this inertia even within the school to keep this failed model that he created on a whim, just because he saw a vision one day, a dream vision, and just you know pursued it. I mean, it's you know he created the uh, mechanical spider from Wild Wild West. He just <laughs> did it to all our kids. Cool, you know. So you know he wiped his hands from that. And was like, yeah, that 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 didn't work. Um, you know, not my problem though. And decided then that he should move to charter schools. That's that's the ticket. It's actually uh, the problem with schools is they're too democratically run. There's too much <laughs> democratic accountability. Again, uh, if they're gonna succeed like a business, they have to run like a small uh, dictatorship <laughs> with no oversight. Got to be lean, agile. <laughs> yeah, got to get lean. Got to get agile. And. Um, you know, the, that interestingly kind of brings us to Washington State and the battle over charter schools Ooh, yeah. in uh, Washington State, which is also like a fascinating indictment of uh, Washington State's awful fucking um, uh, referendum system. But so basically in 1995, Washington State was one of the first states to propose or have legislation proposing charter schools, which was voted down in the Senate and, you know, uh, crushed it, right? So the supporters then tried to have a referendum. At this point, there wasn't a ton of money in any of this. So not a lot of investment on either side of it. And the referendum was voted down 64 against charter schools, 35% for charter schools, right? State representatives then tried to shove through another bill about charter schools in 97, 98, 99, all failing to get passed, right? But then in 2000, Paul Allen gets involved. And so Paul Allen says, you know what? Let's just try another jam through of charter schools using the referendum system. So they have one in 2000 and Paul Allen dumps about three and a quarter million dollars into the pro charter school side. All right. The opponent side. So the vote no side raised eleven thousand dollars. Oh, my God. So it was only <laughs> outspent three hundred and nine to one. <laughs> now, it's important. This still was voted down, right? So people still voted no to charter schools, 52% to 48%, right? But having seen his buddy Paul in, in the game, Bill all of a sudden in 2004 says, I got to get in there. <laughs> I got to get that sweet, sweet charter school success. And so uh, in 2004, he pushes the legislature to get this, uh, you know, charter, another charter school bill passed to the legislature because they figured they couldn't get it passed via referendum. Uh, the legislature shoves it through, and uh, unions and stuff have a big campaign against, you know, like, hey, you know, this is fucking bullshit, all this kind of stuff. And actually, the a judge overturns the charter school uh, law and says, like, no, nah, that's, that's horseshit. You can't publicly fund a private school. Uh, at which point, they again go back to the referendum. <laughs> at which point... Uh, they dumped $3.9 million with Bill Gates giving well over a million, Paul Allen well over a million, and then uh, some characters like John Walton of the Walmart family, who doesn't live in the state of Washington, kicking in another half million just for the fuck of it, right? You know, But yeah, so they raised $3.9 million. Uh, the unions, the AFT, the NEA and stuff all got involved and, you know, they raised a, I believe, measly like couple hundred thousand dollars to, to combat this because uh, it turns out they don't have as much money as Bill Gates does. Oh, weird. And once again, they were able to actually get a no on charter schools, 58 percent to 41 percent this time. Right. So 
they just wait till 2009 and just dump even more money into it, right? And so they finally are able to get a charter school referendum passed by a vote of like 50.5% to 49.5%. In the long game, man. Yeah, and it's almost, again, and basically they went from spending $4 million on the one to spend $11 million on the next one. And it's almost like their lesson when they lose these things after dumping money into it is not to give up, but to just dump more money into it. Because oh, you only weird. have to because you only have to win once, it turns yeah. out. So even if the state says over and over again they don't want charter schools, you can just keep ramming it down their fucking throat until yep. they finally take it, right? Which is what happened. But again, a judge stepped in and said, uh, that's actually illegal. <laughs> like, you can't have a fucking charter school. Like, you know, it's it's in the state constitution. You can't have one. It was the clearest ruling in the country against charter schools. So the Gates Foundation then funded a charter school group to create new legislation that basically allowed uh, the state to fund, because the, the funding of the charter schools was what was legal, allowed the state to use lottery revenue to fund the charter schools, which is they ended up getting shoved through in 2016, which just last year, uh, a state Supreme Court ruled that that's cool, that, that, that all works. Uh, that, by the way, that funding legislation was initially written by ALEC, which is our uh, the famous uh, American Legislative Exchange Council, which mm -hmm. uh, stand your ground laws, all that other kind of stuff. Cool. Also a recipient of uh, Gates Foundation funding. <laughs> Amazing. Weird. But again, it shows the sort of character of like Bill Gates education reform, right? In that it is completely antithetical to any sort of like democratic practice, right? Again, we have charter school losses over and over and over again. We have something like, I think there's something like eight referendums for charter schools that all vote no, but the only one that really matters is the one that votes yes by less than 1%, right? That's the one that counts, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so now we have charter schools, which by the way, the very first one that opened uh, failed within three months because of <laughs> wild mismanagement <laughs> was shut down uh, by the state. And uh, we currently actually a couple months ago just had two shut down in the Seattle area again because they couldn't you know keep uh, students in it and things like that. But it shows the sort of you know again one of the other avenues through which the Gates Foundation is essentially shaping you know the education experience without uh, it necessarily being like so open or out front, right? Yeah, I mean it's hard for me hearing this not to think immediately of Tim Iman. He's essentially like the Tim Iman of charter schools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep going back to the well until you get the answer that you like and the one that sticks. Yeah. And we should, you know, I think there's two, there's sort of two levels to this too because we can talk, sit here and talk about how much charter schools suck in mm -hmm. every possible way. I mean, obviously, uh, first layer, layer of that is they are undemocratic. They're, for some reason, for-profit enterprises that are clearly just opening up like a market to, and and also a vehicle for devaluing the power of uh, the teachers unions and all this mm. all this like austerity privatization bullshit. But also the the metrics now show because this has been a push you know by the Gates Foundation everywhere. The metrics show they they suck. Like yeah. the the outcomes are bad. They're also uh, tend to be very unequal. Um, yeah. It's it's a bad scene anywhere you look at it. Yeah, there. Uh, every study at this point shows they're at best 
equal to public schools. That is in best case scenario. <laughs> and the thing that is crazy about that is charter schools actually get to pick their students. So there was last year, there was an audit done of the uh, charter schools that are open in this or King County, Pierce County area. And the things they found was that surprise, surprise, when compared next to the neighborhood school, uh, the you know amount of kids on subsidized lunches was significantly lower at the charter school, right? Oh, weird. Uh, the amount of kids who were on um, a, you know extensive or time intensive like learning plans, right? So kids who had special needs, things like that. It turns out they all got to go to the public school, and the charter school took you know other kids, right? And so you know, in a lot of ways, the charter school is seizing certain advantages that we know about in education and failing anyways, and that is <laughs> a truly impressive feat. Um, because the reality is about education and about improving education is the real sort of gap in education in America is explained by one thing. That's poverty. And yeah. everybody in education knows it. Like it's the reason why test scores are higher in wealthy neighborhoods has nothing to do with the teachers or anything like that. It literally is that the kids have more money than the kids in other areas. Yeah, and their lives aren't as like deprived. Yeah deprived and miserable yeah their lives aren't deprived their lives aren't as fraught uh they also have a testing regime that is tailor-made for them yeah. as well as an entire uh test prep industry that is created for them as well yeah. you know um anybody who ever is like growing up in the suburbs know that you don't just take the sat you go to prep classes and all that shit right i just took the sat yeah likewise <laughs> yeah well look the and three now we're podcasters first of all the three of us are on this boat for a reason <laughs> yeah but uh other people who were probably more successful than us in high school did like all that stuff um but yeah uh you know, yeah, there's a whole test prep industry and stuff like that for them. And uh, remarkably, these tests that are supposed to, you know, uh, measure your knowledge or, uh, it, you know, have been used by eugenicists to claim some sort of innate knowledge. Uh, the more test prep practice you get, the uh, better your score gets. Like, huh. there's a direct correlation, oh, it turns out. Yeah, it's weird. The more, like, um, yeah, uh, very expensive tutoring, essentially, designed mm -hmm. to specifically get you to pass the test, actually works. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing how that works. But um, uh, so the funny things money can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting, right? And so, yeah, I mean, this push for charter schools and the Gates Foundation, you know, it wasn't just done at the state level. So when, by the way, when uh, they finally were able to shove this referendum through, the Gates Foundation immediately threw $35 million into a fund to start setting up charter schools immediately because they essentially wanted to get the ball rolling as quickly as possible because they knew the second they got the schools on the ground and functioning, it'd be hard to get rid of them, right? So essentially they're like, yes, get, you know, get the plague all over the villagers, <laughs> you know, as fast as you can once they let you through the gate, right? Because who knows, they might kick you out, but then you're, you're, you know, you left what, that behind. Um, he also did this on a national level uh, through his funding of, co you know, slightly covert funding of Waiting for Superman, the rather awful fake documentary about charter schools that encapsulates a lot about the Gates Foundation, but also about, um, you know, charter schools themselves. I mean, the Gates Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation, the Broad Foundation all funded that film. But they actually created a uh, front group, essentially, to drop the money into that then was a different <laughs> foundation that gave money to the making of the movie. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as easily traceable back to them in the production they, of this they, film. They 
didn't they declined a screen credit? Uh, yeah, <laughs> apparently. Um, and then they did this, you know, other sort of sleight of hand where they they showed it at a film festival, right, as an independent documentary. And then Bill Gates had Paramount buy the film for release. Which again, not revealing the fact that Bill Gates actually own or has an enormous share of the company that owns Paramount, uh, and that you know, did Paramount pick up the movie because their boss made it <laughs> and it's a giant pet project? Oh, you know, I guess I'm being paranoid and conspiratorial. Yeah, I, I think there. it was just that good. Yeah, it was just that good. <laughs> But, you know, so we have everything from the sort of uh, duplicity involved in his sort of education reform shown in the making of this film to the grossest aspects of uh, the charter school movement, what they're doing with education. You know, uh, like the biggest scene in the film is these awful lotteries where they line up all these kids in like a school gym and they do a sort of lottery system of who gets to go to the charter school and who has to go to the school that they've told everybody is awful and that you're going to die if you go to and stuff like that. <laughs> and they read the names out. And so you get to watch in the documentary in real time as, you know, families and children at like six years old are being just crushed like yeah. in real time. Which is yeah. in itself, it's a marketing thing. For totally. It's, to make yeah. it seem like this is this great thing. This is the only way you're going to have a good like mm -hmm. education outcome. And it's done too because, you know, as people, critics have pointed out, you could just like send the kids a letter telling them that they got accepted to the charter school, but they want the visual of like families crying, of people breaking down that they didn't get in because then they feed that to reporters and they feed that to the news and say, look how much people want to get into these charters. They must be really good, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's, uh, and the fact that they like target particularly black youth for this. It's like a really disgusting bit of propagandistic theater that they just engage in and, you know, which kind of cuts to some of the other awful aspects about this. But. And this is all brought to us by the loving grace of mm -hmm. Bill Gates, who, yeah. you know, uh, that's the great thing about philanthropy is he just gets to do that. He gets to make yeah. that choice. Um, you know, this is... The, he's thought of, you know, along with like, I mean, I know even my own like, you know, Lib Dem friends will in this town will talk about Bill Gates as being, you know, oh, one of the good billionaires. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the whole like thrust behind the Gates Foundation. Um, and it's like we can see here, obviously, there's this clear path that starting from the hubris of a of an out of touch insane billionaire thinking he can he just has the right ideas can uh sort of catapult this absolutely malignant thing mm -hmm. onto our uh education system that you know where it's failing is failing because he has all the fucking money yeah uh instead of the families who are trying to educate their kids um but there's like a whole other level to it which is that that I that I like insist on um, arguing about with people is that like even if um, even if this stuff had turned out better, I mean it's predictable that it doesn't. It's predictable that this is all like malignant trash that is undemocratic that is like serves the prerogatives of wealth. But even if it didn't, like it's totally undemocratic and unaccountable. Like they yeah. can just do this yeah. for no. And what if what what if we're lucky and Bill Gates is some kind of benevolent genius who can solve all our problems? But then that's like the emperors of Rome, okay? Like, is he the? 
who's going to be the last good emperor, right? Like, is it going to be Jeff Bezos? Yeah, I mean, it's positively futile. I mean, we talked on the show about that New York Times interview with Melinda Gates, and, you know, the interviewer in the most softball way has kind of brought up this issue of, like, uh, some people, like, criticize y'all's sort of high-handedness and, like, school reform. And she tells the story, I believe, about going to Memphis, and she's like, yeah, we were pushing the school reform in Memphis, and, you know, I sat in this, like, PTA meeting with, like, parents and teachers, and if they really don't want to do it, you know, it's hard for me to, like, push it through. And it's one of those things, though, not the journalists who talked to her or her thought for a second, like, but why were you there at all? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you have no business being there. You're not an education expert. You're, you literally are only there because you have money. And they had to assemble, essentially, the entire school and community to try and, like, ward you away with, like, torches and shit, <laughs> like, get you out of there. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a completely, I mean, it shows the disproportionate power. And it's, I mean, it's it's positively futile, like, in a lot yeah, of ways, and, you know? And their answer to that is, well, we'll just go somewhere else where mm-hmm. the resistance isn't as fierce. And also, I mean, the whole story is ridiculous on his face because what she seems to be saying in that interview is like i me personally there Mm -hmm. in that moment you know i'm hearing this pushback from all these people gathered against me one little lone melinda gates right yeah like that's not the battle that's being fought here it's being fought between these people and all of your fucking money that is lobbying fucking state and city governments that is producing fucking bullshit propaganda like triumph of the charter school documentaries (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean a largely staged documentary that is about all the credibility of say seattle is dying with you know essentially the same propagandistic intent brian in this analogy who is Superman? <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, which maybe we can put some links up on this episode, but Joanne Barkin, who actually writes quite a bit about this, you know, one of the things she points out is the power of Bill Gates' money itself in that compared to education spending in America, what he's giving and what all these groups together are giving is less than 1% of that funding right it's still 99 funded by taxpayers but because he attaches all of these ultimatums on getting the money because he like uses the money intentionally uh, you know by the gates foundation's own admission to leverage the school district as much as possible uh he effectively is controlling the direction of education despite the fact that we actually all pay for it. You know, I mean, that that's the crazy part, too, is that even though he's throwing all this money around, it's really not all that much in the realm of education funding, but it so outsizes each of us individually that it gives him this enormous seat at the table. Well, it's not just that. It's also that because we are, you know, coming up on uh, 40 years <laughs> of heavy austerity at every level of government, but certainly including in education, where everything has been slowly, ch- all the f- funding has been slowly chipped away, um, is now more than ever, you know, there's no money, there's so much less money than, you know, in, say, the mid-century coming from the federal government. It's all, like, having to be squeezed out of levies and property taxes. It's very unequal. Everyone is has their budgets, you know, narrowly, just down to the fucking bone, uh, cutting programs all over the country, you know, cutting your arts programs, cutting, fucking this town, cutting some fucking math and shit, mm-hmm. you know? Um, when 
a school system is in that position where they cannot actually, and this is the case everywhere, they can't really do what they know they should be doing, what they could be doing. Any another fucking fifty bucks, they're gonna beg mm-hmm. for, you know. Yeah. And if you can, oh, drop a million dollars on a school system, like it doesn't matter if it's it doesn't matter if even that is like a small part of their overall budget because their overall budget is already stretched so fucking thin that you drop any money in, it's like, oh, we just added a literal fucking math class, right? Yeah. Which to these educators who actually care about like, um providing an education to kids this is the only fucking reason they're there like if they can they they've been beaten down to a point where that is all they they have to get excited about that to be like oh my god i can actually put all the kids in seattle school district through fucking math yeah this year you know yeah well and i mean it's worth remarking i mean particularly in the case of washington state uh you know bill gates and his company microsoft have played no small part in the inability of washington state to collect taxes while at the same time he pushes, you know, charter school reform in Washington to directly divert money away from the public education system and the public schools. And, you know, the same year in 2012, when a judge again shot down the charter school thing, saying that the funding was illegal, the state Supreme Court also said that the schools are criminally underfunded under the Constitution, too. So, I mean, it's that hand in hand sort of thing that's coming together of neoliberal reform, essentially facilitating the takeover of these public, you know, goods by uh, you know, people like Bill Gates, who then uh, maybe we can get now into the cynical aspect of it, are turning profits right yeah. off yeah. of it. Well, right? it's like it is all connected to this because this the whole charter school movement. It's a particularly you know offensive one, but it is just it's just one natural outcome of neoliberal austerity politics. It's the point of neoliberal austerity mm-hmm. politics. It's a it really is a market sourced, market driven solution that was mm-hmm. like given an ability to be born out of the market by neoliberal austerity politics that says we're gonna cut government to the bone and say the alternative we need and then you know, we need to privatize mm-hmm. everything, okay? But And when you cut these services to the bone, they start to look like shit, like they're not performing, and you say, well, they should run like a business, or they should just be a business. This is just the version of that in education, but it's something that we've just been creeping toward in everything all this time. And it's the charter school idea, and this idea people got to, oh, we could use this kind of weird method to slowly privatize all the schools in America to open up this market is just an idea that you can have once the country's been on this path for this long Mm -hmm. and that it's like a mark it's a marketing opportunity opening up you see oh the schools people are disappointed in the schools and they're falling apart well I we can the market can come in and fix this it's a Mm -hmm. natural thing yeah and I mean some of it is very simple and crass so in uh, California they passed what are called uh, parent trigger laws where uh, if 50 you know percent plus one of the parents at a school decide that the school is bad they can demand that either the principal be fired all the teachers be fired or that the school itself be shut down or turned over turned into a charter school right this of course was legislation again written by Alec and promoted by the Gates Foundation that was shoved through in California immediately after it was passed, 
uh, a group called uh, Green Dot, who's a charter school company that is funded by the <laughs> also receives funding by the Gates Foundation. It's weird how this keeps coming up. Funding by the Gates Foundation got a uh, I think a two million dollar grant from the Gates Foundation to go ahead and turn a school. Right. So they found an elementary school in Compton. They sent a crew of people down there with a house that they rented for them and everything to essentially go into the neighborhood and just propagandize and collect signatures to have the school shut down and convert it over to a charter school. They eventually were able to get the required amount of signatures, but then the parents and stuff started to figure out what was going on, that essentially they're being conned into giving the school to Green Dot so that the Green Dot could you know, make this money off it. And they, you know, tried to pull their signatures and all this kind of stuff. And they, you know, eventually got LA, you know, USD to come in and say, like, no, like, we're not turning this over to a charter school. So they then went out into the suburbs of LA, found another elementary school, and did the exact same thing. Now, this time, when parents got upset and tried to rescind their signatures or whatever and said that the you know, signatures were, you know, were, they got these signatures under false pretenses. They lied to us about who they were, all this kind of stuff. Uh, what ended up happening was the Green Dot and this front organization, which is how they were running all of this, basically got a circuit court judge to intervene because the school district said, okay, this this whole thing is like fishy. We're not fucking doing this. So they got a circuit court judge to intervene and say, you know what? Actually, that's not how the law works. Parents actually can't rescind signatures on this, like on these trigger law forms. And they forced them to turn the char- turn the school over to Green Dot Charter Schools, right? And so... There is a deeply cynical, obvious slight crime happening, which is charter schools using money from the Gates Foundation are essentially directly lying to people in order to have them turn the school over to them, at which point then they start uh, what we know from charter schools is they tend to immediately start cutting costs or whatever uh, while running the school at the same amount of money that they would run the public school. So essentially just pocketing what's on top, right? Uh, like many nonprofits, they manage to find a way to make a profit, right? Uh, but... Similar things happen that affect the Gates Foundation directly. You know, one of the Gates Foundation's big initiative is that, you know, we're going to improve education through technology. So they go through and they tell schools like, hey, we'll give you a grant to buy a bunch of uh, computers, right, to give to all the elementary school students so they can have a laptop to take notes on or whatever. Cool, just an so, iPad? Yeah, just so, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> it just so happens the computers require Microsoft software, right? Yeah. That Bill Gates, you know, just has maybe an interest in, right? And while they just gave you that grant to buy the computers, what happens after that, right? Well, now it's your responsibility, right? And when the computers have to be replaced, guess who gets to replace it? And so now we have this insane situation. So my brother, who has a daughter in, uh, you know, in, in, in public schools in Indiana... You know, he gets a bill at the beginning of the school year for when his daughter was in elementary school. I think they were telling him they wanted him to pay $800 a year to rent the laptop that she was forced to have because they had gotten into one of these fucking idiot programs and couldn't afford the computers after a certain amount of time. So they just shifted it all to the parents. But that is a direct revenue generator back to Gates, right? Yeah. Now, there's also a lot of other Silicon Valley shitheads that are all involved in this little con. And, you know, uh, I think it's uh, Megan Erickson had written this uh, book on education, but that basically, you know, she pointed out that going to private schools in Silicon Valley, the one thing that was really interesting, the private schools that all these shit had to send their kids to, the one thing that's really interesting is that laptops and phones that were banned in the classrooms. Because actually, every bit of research we have says that having to, giving a kid a laptop in a classroom is fucking awful yeah. for their education. Yeah. But not bad for bottom lines. <laughs> well, here's, you, <laughs> you know, know, what's important as we're talking about this to think about is like, 
we don't need to sit here and believe that Bill Gates and everyone below him have this, you know, nefarious view about um, how, the, like, that this is all a scam they're running mm -hmm. for the sole purpose of, uh, you know, redirecting this uh, tax revenue to back to themselves, you know? Because, uh, but it, it doesn't need to be like that. Yeah, this yeah. is what class is. Mm -hmm. Bill Gates and uh, the, and then the other wealthy people in his organizations and that give to these things and then the professional class below them who run this stuff and who then take over these charter schools and who go uh, flip these schools or whatever. They, this is what a class is. They see things differently. So Bill Gates can sit to himself mm -hmm. and go, yeah, we're going to put these Microsoft computers in all these schools. And he's just thinking of it as synergy. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's, you know, he's, this is what he started Microsoft for in the first place, to, to bring the personal computer revolution to every kid. And, you know, they can justify it in all these ways. But um, that's how, that's why mm -hmm. they are class enemies, okay? Because they can have yeah. this, uh, when you're rich like this, it, you can have a worldview that allows you to act in ways that obvious to anyone else are for the purpose of benefiting you mm -hmm. um, and convince yourself that you're some kind of benevolent god. Yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure for Bill Gates, he just he keeps accidentally stumbling into these revenue streams, you know. Yeah. Um, he's just that good. He's just that good, right? <laughs> and. And I think, too, even if he wasn't cynically, you know, creating revenue streams for himself, even if he was just losing money, although we know that he's not, you know, with his foundation, but even if it wasn't just a giant tax dodge or a way to launder money that, you know, he has made through, you know, income that he gives his wife as the head of the foundation. But anyways, even if it wasn't all that, right, I think it actually serves an even deeper ideological purpose for Gates in that, you know, one, he's saying... The problem with class, with uh, income inequality and things like that, that has nothing to do with capitalism itself. It has nothing to do with his ill-gotten goods. Yeah. It can be fixed through uh, education, right? And then when you fix education and the kids still are poor, well, that's their fault now. But yeah. That becomes an individual failing on them. Because after all, I mean, Bill Gates helped them, and if he helped them and they couldn't get it done then you know that's that's on them that that might be a good segue to talking about uh gates foundation uh sort of uh medical adventures uh in <laughs> the global south yeah yeah so um maybe it's worth talking about in uh basically prior to 2006 in india uh I believe it was Merck or GlaxoSmithKline. I think it's Merck. They want they made this HPV vaccine that they wanted to get onto the market, right? But one of the big problems with getting drugs onto the market is that you have to go through test trials with like, you know, actual human subjects. Now in the West, those test trials can be expensive because, you know, you're like actually responsible for hurting people. <laughs> and so, you know, it can be expensive, it can be time consuming, etc. It's very so, controlled and very careful. Yeah, for the reasons that you're giving these things that are not yet tested to actual human beings who mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. So what they did is they found some human beings who didn't matter, uh, and that so is, that's always the trick, isn't it? Yeah. And so again, using funding from the Gates Foundation, uh, they went to a village in rural India. 
uh, they rounded up a bunch of teenage girls and they just started sticking them with something. Who fucking knows what, right? To do well, some test trials. Key, what, what they were sticking with was a version of a drug yeah. that was at a stage of not having yet been tested. Yeah. And they made a choice, right, to either go through the more rigorous, slower um, steps you would have to do, say, in this country. And instead, they're like, well, we can get all the data on... what We can get a huge amount of data from going to India yeah. and basically forcibly um, inoculating people. And then, if it turns out to be a bust, if, say... We end up killing a bunch of people, and this this version <laughs> of the drug has horrible side effects. Then, yeah, we will have spent a little money doing that, but not much, so we can avoid doing that with the doing the expensive version of the test that we're going to have to do eventually on the good version. But we don't have to do it seven times because if they'd done this in the United States on on a kind of crappy version that mm. say I don't know killed people, yeah, they would have. Oh, that'd be a that'd be a big loss for them. But they, if they can get a few of those out of the way cheaply mm. and then get one that works, they yeah. can then just spend the big money on that one. Yeah, and I mean, what happened is exactly what you said. They ended up killing two people, and apparently thousands of people got seriously sick uh, from whatever the hell they're doing up there, right, from this, this drug testing. Um, and what ended up happening was is, you know, the Indian parliament did an investigation, and their finding was that... Uh, the group was called PATH that the Gates Foundation was funding and using to, like, you know, do this testing, right, to facilitate this testing. But the Indian Parliament found that PATH had basically lied about what they were doing. They had, uh, you know, uh, basically forced people into, you either tricked or forced people into signing consent forms. In many cases, they just forged signatures on the consent forms. And they basically said it was a clear-cut case of, you know, child abuse, <laughs> essentially. But the problem being, uh, the Gates Foundation is a slightly, like, amorphous thing, right? So, yeah, the Indian Parliament says it's a clear-cut case of child abuse. What are they going to do about it? Are they going to come to Seattle, right, and round up the Gateses? You know, so, again, the Foundation, they create this disaster, and they just wipe their hands of it and move on to the next place. And, and so they've done this, things like this. They have funded mm -hmm. this kind of thing over this, and over and over again in India, in Africa, yeah, lots this, of places. This is a big function of the Gates Foundation, actually, is facilitating uh, medical experiments in, uh, yeah, in, in the third world, essentially, so that uh, you know companies, again, like GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, etc., can get this stuff done cheaply and quickly and skirting as many regulations as they would in the and, West as and possible. It, and it serves... You know, the purpose we just discussed about getting these sort of initial trials out of the way cheaply, um, but there's other um, there's other reasons for it, uh, like there's other benefits for it for these drug companies, which is um, creating markets for these drugs that... Yeah, and that comes um, yeah, and that comes a little bit later, particularly the story of the HPV thing. Um, I mean, I will point out that, you know, I, there has been, like, pushback on some of this criticism that comes from, you know, say, the imperial periphery 
about this kind of stuff, right? I mean, uh, we're getting it right now with, you know, uh, uh, Native people in Hawaii protesting the building of the uh, giant telescope there, uh, where there's this sort of like, oh, the the people, the darker skinned people don't like science or some, some shit like that. Like it's some sort of, you know, we got to do what we got to do for science. Of course, we could imagine that if Bill Gates just rolled over to like Roosevelt High School in uh, Seattle and just rounded up a bunch of teen girls and started injecting them with some fucking mystery serum and, they, and two of them died, they're probably a bigger story, right? And that people probably have a slightly different opinion. So one, this kind of stuff is facilitated by like the inherent racism that is involved in imperialism and things like that. But yeah, the, the marketing stuff is, is interesting because that very same HPV vaccine, when it became available in the U S I believe in 2006, mm-hmm. um, there was a Gardasil. giant, yeah, Gardasil. Yeah, that, they have such hilarious names, but yeah. uh, there's a giant marketing campaign to get people to use it. And, you know, so they, they, there was a lot of buy-in initially. And then there was the medical journal papers that came out. They're basically like, you know, uh, basically everybody, like every every woman at, past a certain age has like HPV or has, or has, has had time, it at yeah. some point, right? And that the connection between that and cervical cancer is actually like a little dubious and it's not proven and all this kind of stuff. That, there, that basically the things that Merck was claiming about this vaccine were not true, right? Now, that led to a decline. Once this information started to come out a little bit, that led to an immediate decline in the purchase of the vaccine and it had in some- the United States not super common but it had bad side effects yeah it yeah could you know yeah i mean like any any vaccine or anything like that or any medicine you take right there's you know potential side effects uh, but yeah this the, these things conspired and there was an immediate decline in the united states which led to a decline in western europe shortly afterwards so they lost market share in the west and what gates ended up doing was he used the gates foundation which by the way is like the largest funder of the world health organization and things like that. So he leveraged his position as the Gates Foundation to open up new markets for his friends in the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in Africa, you know, under his whole thing of like, look, we're just helping women in Africa by going and, you know, uh, facilitating the purchase via world health organization well, money, etc. of this was really, uh, vaccine, yeah. Um Melinda was really like yeah. out in front of this push as like you know, we're going to prevent these millions of women from getting cervical mm-hmm. cancer, et cetera. Yeah. And it's uh, in this has been a big thing um, with various uh, IUD birth controls and things like that that have been uh, largely rejected by women in the Western world because I- of side implanted. effects. The yeah, implanted, implanted yeah, yeah, yeah. The implanted birth control that has been largely rejected by like women in the West because of the side effects. Uh, you know, again, Melinda Gates taking the lead on this, but the Gates Foundation has been, you know, really pivotal, pivotal in getting those uh, markets opened up in the third world to essentially absorb that lost market share in the West, right? And, you know, some of these... Uh, Implanted birth control, you know, have they have some like pretty serious side effects. Well, they have side to effects. which Melinda Gates' response was, "But you know, women in Africa are just crying out for implanted birth control because the men there are so backwards." You know, is her essential yeah. response. You and know. and uh, the the effect of these things, even when they're effective, is yeah. to uh, you know render someone with a uterus uh, in uh, essentially yeah. infertile for about for five years yeah. at a time, um, yeah. which. The, you know, for some people may, that may be a choice somebody, say, in the West will, might want to make, but what they've done in the third world, uh, in the global south, the Gates Foundation, is push this stuff as, like, the best mm-hmm. possible birth control and try to get this, these 
you know, five at a time year uh, sterilizations as like a first line birth control, because which essentially takes sort of the control over their own sort of reproductive health away from these women. Um, and, you know, which it it's not hard to look at that as uh, like fucking racist and essentially Malthusian. Well, funny you should bring that up. Uh, Bill Gates is actually a dedicated Malthusian. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as late in the game as 2000, he was in interviews talking about how, you know, he believed in the, like, saying it, I believe in the Malthusian sort of view of population. And he would always say, particularly in, you know, in places like Africa, and he would also throw in places like Central Asia, Pakistan, etc., right? Um, India, etc., right? Uh, he has since, because Bill Gates's PR team is actually quite good, he has since kind of, like, rolled that back and he doesn't say it out loud anymore he still slips but it comes ways, out you know? yeah it comes out here and there and uh in 2009 he actually ended up holding a secret meeting in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis uh there was a meeting i believe in new york city where he met with uh, uh one of the rockefellers i believe warren buffett and some other you know of the wealthiest people in the world and they had a meeting about their foundations, what the most important issues in the face of this international economic collapse, what are the most important issues in the world today and how should they tackle them? And, you know, some people who had let slip to the British press uh, what exactly was going on in this meeting basically said that at Gates is sort of pushing and but with all their enthusiastic agreement, they decided that uh, overpopulation was the real problem, yeah. that the problem for environmentalism, the problem, you know, the problem with the environment, the problem with all these things uh, was actually an overpopulation issue, particularly in the third world. Now, the irony, of course, being that the uh, carbon footprint of probably the bottom billion people on this planet is smaller than Bill Gates's personal carbon yeah. footprint. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, that but well, you, know, that's you, you can. Well, you know, but that that's through like looking at it through a lens of climate change, right? Yeah. But this impulse, this takes mm -hmm. us back to like what class is, right? That these people can have because their mind has been poisoned by their absurd wealth. They can have these very dumb fucking ideas that they not, nonetheless believe are really serious and rational. Mm -hmm. They just happen to flatter their own sort of prerogatives, okay? So Let's go back and just talk about, you know, Malthus himself, the guy himself, uh, early 19th century, sort of early industrial revolution. This guy's idea is that him and wealthy, you know, Europeans like him are looking around at uh, the po poor people around them and going, gosh, gosh, they're people are, you know, coming to the cities. They're living like rats. They're starving. They're dirty. I don't like to look at them. I uh, can't think of any, uh, what could be the, I guess there's just too many of them. It must be that there's too many mm -hmm. of them. Not that I'm too rich and that the system that makes me rich is oppressing them. No. Then they're also looking to the empire, um, to the colonialized world, and they're looking at these cultures and societies that have been fucking ripped apart, turned upside down, reduced to poverty and servitude by colonialism. And they're going like, gosh, they're living like f fucking rats. They're mm -hmm. they're poor. They're diseased. They're immiserated. Oh, God, what could be the problem here? I, I guess there's just too fucking many of them. Yeah. Um, this was obviously um, just a very convenient lie then, uh, especially absurd considering how few fucking people were alive in the lifetime of uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Is it Thomas Malthus? Yeah, Thomas Malthus, yeah. yeah. Um, and... But there's a, but a very popular. I mean, mm-hmm. a very well, like a, out it's of fucking print stuck. Since the days yeah. of it's fucking yeah. stuck forever. Yeah, with rich people. Yeah, and now now there is a there is a new life to it now because in the age of uh, climate change, there is a new version of the argument that has at least a twinge of credibility. If you start to go mm-hmm. down this road and have this conversation, it it can start to sound like maybe has at least a little mm-hmm. credibility compared to the fucking uh, 19th century. Um, because we're living in a time when um, one way to phrase it would be that humanity has uh, taken fucking fossil fuel out of the ground, burned carbon, sent carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and thus we have caused this uh, impending climate catastrophe. This is the sort of simplified view summed up in describing our current age as the Anthropocene, right? right? Mm-hmm. As if we're living in this time that should best be described by the fact that for the first time over the last like you know 150 years, human beings are having a direct uh, effect on the climate. But of course, this... Um, uh, totally ignores any actual economic analysis. Like mm-hmm. you said, yeah. actually, there's this enormous amount of people, most of the people in the yeah. fucking world, um, account for virtually none of the energy use, virtually yeah. none of the carbon. And we in the uh, industrialized uh, uh, West, uh, the global North, we are actually... Um, putting most of the carbon in the atmosphere and then even compared to us mm-hmm. we're nothing compared to again the f- these fucking billionaires who are like yeah. jet setting around the world and have these massive homes on every fucking continent and uh, fucking you know yeah. massive yachts and just everything else but that still is the wrong way to look at it because you it's not it's not about anyone's individual consumption it's about mm. It's fucking capital. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the processes of production. It's the logic of capital itself, like the logic of extraction under capitalism. Uh, I mean, even simple things, too, like the uh, the logic of everything is to be purchased, right, which involves individual packaging and stuff. I mean, like, yeah. literally, uh, there is nothing you can do as an individual to... I think Debbie Klein's got to put this, like, fairly forcefully. Like, n- literally nothing an individual do will stop climate change. Like, yeah. you know, you, there's no practice. Which should tell you and as an American, you did as an individual <laughs> caused yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And as an American, it's like, your, you know, carbon footprint is fucking enormous compared to somebody from India, somebody from China, right? Uh, the country of China, like, you know, you know, even this is debatable, but nationally surpassed, like, America's, you know, carbon footprint and uh, as a nation, right? Like, four years ago, China has four times the population of the United States. I mean, ours is still wildly... They're going through a major industrial revolution. We're deindustrializing, and we're still wildly polluting more than they do. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's... It shows the insanity, but not necessarily even the insanity, but like I think the actual logic behind what Bill Gates is talking about, which is that, you know, the world has too many people, mainly those darker ones over there. Yeah. And this has sort of always been the logic. I mean, famously during the Irish potato famine, right? Uh, there's yeah. actually an amazing book by a guy named Tim Pat Coogan called The Famine Myth. That's actually good on this. But, uh, 
you know, the famine itself was the product of an enclosure movement that the English had forced on Ireland. It was the product of a monoculture that they had forced on Ireland. And it was the product of the complete destruction of systems of community in favor of the free market in Ireland, right? When the famine started, the English said, well, of course the market will respond because the free market you know, it, it, it is the best way to attribute, you know, distribute goods or whatever, the market will respond. So while people, because they had no money, because they were a colonial subject, were starving in Ireland, the British were exporting food out of Ireland back to England, right? And they said, well, you know, if the Irish wanted food, then the market should have saved them. Well, it turns and, out the Irish were poor. Well, yeah. <laughs> and when it didn't save them, all of a sudden it became, well, that's the market saying there's too many people in Ireland and we have to come back and reach uh, a stability, right? A holding stability for the country. And so the British sat there and literally watched, you know, a third of the population of this island die. Now, the irony of the British saying that, oh, this is just a Malthusian sort of working out of the population of Ireland was the density of Ireland at the time was probably one one hundredth oh. of England. There was already no one living in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, you know. Then after the famine, there was really you know, no one living in Ireland. And that population didn't recover till like yeah. the mid 20th century. Yeah. And I mean, it really was this, I mean, complete working out of the logic that you see today of, uh, you know, the market is king. Uh, oh, it turns out the market's killing a bunch of people. Well, uh, there must be some other, uh, you know, reason in the natural world, which is the Malthusian balance, well, off, but, which the English then used in, in famines in India as oh, well. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's the same, same, uh, similar yeah. stories in India over and over again into the 20th century. Yeah. Um, you know, it's important to think about this like they, it's not like um, this sort of free market argument is something that the parliament in England. And the people the who are administering, you know, colonial Ireland, like really, you know, bought on a they, yeah. they knew exactly what was going on, oh, they yeah, knew yeah. what would happen. But you have these you you have these ready made conservative arguments, right? Mm -hmm. These arguments, these ideas, these ideologies that service capital, that's that serve the prerogatives of the wealthy, that you can deploy mm -hmm. um to cover what you're doing and to whatever degree different people in whatever situation they are may like rely on those more psychologically than other people i mean mm -hmm. but like that's how it's how people in it's how the sort of the empire could sit there and with a you know a stern face say yeah blah 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 the free market whatever mm -hmm. um and watch people die in ireland even though they knew exactly what was happening and what would happen and it's the way that you know bill gates can mm -hmm. do the same kind of shit well when english colonists first got to the United States, or what would become the United States, uh, there'd already been a mass native die-off caused by uh, you know viruses that uh, Europeans had brought to the New World. And so when they first arrived in the U.S., like the first colonists would tell these stories of finding these just farms, like huge farm, like cultivated farmland and stuff like that. And they said, well, God has brought us this great gift, right? And then when they would meet native populations further inland, they started to notice that, wow, every native population we meet like dies immediately afterwards. And they'd say, well, God's again, clearing the land for us and giving us this great land. Right. And then they would, they quickly realized like, let's keep interacting with them because the more we interact with them, the more they die. And that religious logic through the age of the enlightenment just got changed into a market logic, right. Of the market cleared Ireland right, yeah. <laughs> for further English investment. They would say the same thing in India when, you know, uh, I mean, 
India experienced where the great population collapses when the English <laughs> came in contact with them. And uh, you know, the deeper their hooks got into India, like the worse it got. And they would Successive just... Successive massive famines over yeah, and over yeah. for decades. Yeah, again, there's a, a book by a guy named... a hundred fucking years. Yeah, there's a book by a guy named Mike Davis called Late Victorian Holocaust. If you ever want to read about this, that's uh, extremely depressing, but uh, it's very interesting on this. But, you know, the, again, the market logic took over the religious logic of... Well, you know, uh, if they were meant to survive, the market would have saved them. So therefore, we must be reaching some sort of uh, poverty equilibrium. And if just enough Irish die or just enough Indians die, they won't be impoverished anymore like we see. They'll they'll be wealthy like us, right? They would say shit like that. Well, and think about what that, and, uh, what that logic implies. Know. It says that um, there's this finite amount of wealth or it where wealth is going. Mm -hmm. no, if people are poor... The that means they need more money. Mm -hmm. It's not going to fucking come from me. Yeah. So the person next to them better die so they can have theirs. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And that is the sort of heart of the Malthusian logic. And I think that is Bill Gates. When Bill Gates talks about being a Malthusian, I mean, that's what he's talking about. Is he's saying the condition of people in Africa is surely not going to get better because I'm going to take less. So therefore, there needs to be less of them. Right. And that's the sort of logic. Um, and I think that is the sort of dark underbelly of the Gates Foundation's activities in Africa, why they're so obsessed with uh, curbing female birth rates and things like that, which, by the way, there's like zero evidence that that leads to uh, economic prosperity. Like all the evidence is actually the opposite direction, which is, you know, higher birth rates have actually to do with uh, the economies, uh, yeah. yeah, economies of poverty, and as you get out of those exploitative situations, birth rates then decline, right? Or as you give women things like rights and stuff, you know, and economic security, uh, birth rates decline. Uh, which, by the way, is why like the birth rate for women in the United States is higher than, say, Western Europe. Is that in a lot of ways, women have less rights in America than they do in places in Western Europe, but. You know, it's a completely backwards logic, but you'd have to have some sort of critique of capitalism, which the Gates Foundation clearly does not. Now, other things that they're doing with, you know, their foundation money in Africa, you know, they're 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 engaging in this project that you might call eugenics in Africa. But at the same time, they're also, um, you know, opening markets like we talked about. They're creating these uh, avenues for uh you know, human guinea pig testing of various medical, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, vaccines, you know, medicines, etc. The other thing they're doing is they're actually enforcing patent law, enforcing a very American vision of how uh, uh, health uh, care should work. So in the, you know, sort of neoliberal restructuring of the third world, uh, a lot of these countries have been forced to wildly defund what were national health care systems. And then in comes the Gates Foundation, and they say, look, you no longer get to have uh, – the state can no longer set pharmaceutical prices and things like that. They can no longer get generics from other places. We're going to put you on a 20-year contract with Merck to buy this, right? And you got to buy from them their prices. Um, similarly, they engage in this process where – most of the third world, again, this is one of the things you would never know if you lived in America, but most of the third world in creating national healthcare systems tried to follow the Chinese model of, uh, which is generally called like the barefoot doctor model, but the idea of like a holistic healthcare system, right? Which is actually like a modern healthcare system, which is the idea is like, look, if people are getting uh, diarrhea and stuff, it's because we actually have to fix the water systems. We have to fix the, you know, uh, we have to give like actual toilets and things like that. Whereas the Gates Foundation, their whole thing has always been, Look, just buy a silver bullet drug 
for whatever illness you have. So we'll create a diarrhea vaccine instead of cleaning your water. And you just, you know, <laughs> we'll give you the super vaccine. You can drink the dirtiest fucking water as you want. And you'll just only be kind of sick your entire life, <laughs> right? But they've, they've kind of pushed for this model, which doesn't actually produce very good health results, but it does, like, produce good profits for the companies that sell the, you know, the silver bullets, right? Um, and so that's, like, the other sort of side effect that they've had in these systems. But, again, it's a situation created by neoliberal restructuring that the Gates Foundation then just slides in and facilitates the extraction of profit. And that's the idea of neoliberal restructuring, mm -hmm. of austerity. Yeah, yeah, these things it's are not coincidental. Open up, yeah. it's, to, you, it's to open up markets mm -hmm. so that... Without, I mean, that's it's to clear the way for brilliant entrepreneurs like Bill Gates to invent ways to now extract money out of the situation that was previously t uh, tied up by, you know, uh, civil society. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it also helps by you know relying on things like foundation money. Uh, you know, again, in you know countries in the third world a lot of times the strongest unions are public sector unions and things like that by getting away from public sector funding for these things and going to foundation fundings it also gets away with it gets rid of pesky things like labor unions which again was also one of his targets with education in the u.s reshaping education in the u.s so you know the power of labor diminished the power of capital uh you know pushed forward and the end result is uh the wealthy get wealthier the poor get poor but Again, the Gates Foundation then just comes in and says, well, I mean, this is the whole thing, too, about going from a holistic model to a, like a germ theory model is that, well, if you're sick and you get sick, then that's your fault. It's not our fault. It's not society's fault. It's not that the water's fucking dirty. Well, it's not because you're you know? poor. Yeah, it's not because neoliberalism destroyed like the water system or that you're poor or anything like that. It's your fault, you know, and and that, again, becomes like the recurring theme. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and just to be clear, like they had so... And if you've seen the, you know, Bill's Brain documentary, you know this, that more recently in the last decade, um, the Gates Foundation has said, oh, well, maybe we weren't doing the right things with regard to diarrhea. What we actually need is a better toilet. But yeah. what they've done there is just continue the same logic mm -hmm. of finding the what's the silver bullet thing. Yeah. You treat the symptom, not the disease. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the perfect toilet that also gets around us actually fixing again water systems, things like that, or an economy, right? Yeah, it's, not, yeah, yeah. it's like if these people weren't poor, if their yeah. their societies hadn't been destroyed by colonialism, if they weren't yeah. continuing to be exploited yeah. by um, modern extractive colonialism, yeah, then those people would have the fucking money to build the, a water system. They. That's yeah. it. It's not like some mystery problem you have to figure out, you know? Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's the thing, right, is, uh, you know, for Bill Gates, what's the problem with Africa? He says that the, you know, women have too many children there. But the problem with Africa is 300 years of violent on-the-ground colonialism followed by 50 years of Cold War <laughs> colonialism <laughs> that killed as many people, uh, and then 30 years of neoliberal economic restructuring that, you know, if your country wasn't already thoroughly dismantled, thoroughly dismantled your country, right? Yeah. And now people are trying to live in the wake of that. And Bill Gates is coming in and just telling you, uh, the re your problem is that you have the wrong toilet, not this history <laughs> of exploitation and violence, you know? 
so yes, I mean, the question becomes then like, how does the, you know, Gates Foundation get away with this? Uh, you know, everybody listening to this is like, but I thought Bill Gates is a really nice guy. And, uh, you know, for the last 10 years, one of the other things the Gates Foundation has done is purchase stakes in a lot of media companies who uh, then report what the Gates Foundation wants. So just to give a couple of examples, the Education Lab series in the Seattle Times is paid for by the Gates Foundation and weirdly has the politics of the Gates Foundation. <laughs> um, the I believe it's called the Global Corner or whatever. And the Guardian newspaper in England is, again, paid for by the Gates Foundation and weirdly uh, exalts all the activities of the Gates Foundation in Africa. Vox is actually a property that I believe is like partially owned by Microsoft and also receives money from the Gates Foundation. Type Bill Gates into a Vox search and see the titles of articles that come up. You know, Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. How's he going to save us? Things like that, <laughs> you know. So part of the reason why, you know, you don't hear bad things about the Gates Foundation is they pay a lot of money to a lot of media institutions in order to make sure that you don't hear bad things about the Gates Foundation. And uh, literally probably any, if you know of a media concern that's larger than a 200 person town newspaper or a high school paper, uh, they're probably getting money from the Gates Foundation. This is actually a big push. Are owned by Jeff Bezos. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos doesn't like Bernie Sanders. All of a sudden, the Washington Post has 16, you know, pieces about <laughs> Bernie Sanders, a bad guy in a 18 hour period. So, yeah. I mean, like, you know, that media control can affect a lot of that. We talked a little bit about that with Waiting for Superman and how essentially he sort of slow rolled this release and got this movie put out. And, you know, the whole time uh, it was supposed to be a, an indie documentary that just hit the the right the, the population at the right time and everybody liked it. It just turns out, no, Bill Gates just bankrolled it. Yeah. Perfect. Great. Cool. <laughs> well, that's the Gates Foundation, everybody. Are you hanging in there? I'm are not, you to be honest with you, I'm not. That was some bleak shit. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you sticking with us? Uh are you literally at the Thanksgiving dinner table right now with your AirPods yeah. in your ears, just smiling and nodding along uh, to yeah. Uncle Hopefully. and Grandma. Uh, when you're just l actually listening to Brian's voice. <laughs> Hopefully you just had a speaker attached to oh, your yeah. shoulder like a mech cannon. And you've just been <laughs> opening your mouth to what we're saying to make it sound like you're saying the words <laughs> as you're yelling at your dumb uncle who uh, is, you know, talking about how uh, if uh, poor people, you know, the, the Gates Foundation helps poor people. It's their fault, right? If they're poor. Uh, hopefully you just blasted them with that mech fucking yeah. uh, cannon of our voices. Yeah, you're doing your Jeff Dunham uh, yeah. like 15 minutes. Set. Yeah. yeah, which means that you're probably hitting that weird point between dinner and dessert. Well, which is why, you know, we, we this is a long one. We know we want to mm -hmm. be there for you on this this long, torturous four-day weekend. So you know what? Now's a good pause point if you need to come back. Uh, you know, when when dessert is served, for example, when if you know if you if you want to take your walk around the neighborhood mm -hmm. in silence away from your family and us, now's a good time. Then you have to see them again. Take us you with you. You can put those back in, or you know you can save this for the train ride home or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we've got something very special for you up next. Yeah, uh, if you're like my family, between dinner and pie, we sometimes like to play a game. Gather round, gamers. Don't be shy. 
Whether you're a member of the PC Master Race or still working on your first Battle Royale in Fortnite, on the Nintendo Switch your mom bought you for your birthday, you're welcome here. For this inaugural edition of Colin's Gaming Corner, <laughs> hmm, corner, uh, it's really more of a nook. I wouldn't call it a corner per se. Boxed in by all these damp stacks of newspaper, freak excrement, and that weird creature that's been entombing himself with saliva on the ceiling. I think he goes by Alex Peterson. But let's not waste time. I know that your caffeine reserves are rapidly depleting and your twitch muscles are atrophying away from your precision mouse. So here are three games in the roguelike genre that the freaks and I have been really enjoying down here. The first is Brogue. It's an ASCII-based dungeon crawler created by Brian Walker. Your goal is to travel to the 26th subterranean floor of the dungeon, retrieve the amulet of Yendor, and return with it to the surface. (laughs) Yeah, you can can probably guess why, why that is so popular down here. The second is The Binding of Isaac, and this is from Edmund McMullen, formerly of Team Meat. Your goal is to traverse the basement where you have been been imprisoned by your cruel mother in search of escape. This is, again, also a very popular title with the freaks. Um, I think you, you probably know why. And finally, the third game is Spelunky. So this is a profoundly punishing platforming indie game from Derek Yu. There's a sequel on the way. You explore tunnels looking for treasure. You discover items. And you really just try to survive. So I know that in the time it took me to read this, several of you aged out of professional gaming. (laughs) For you unfortunate members of that category, when you play these games, I think it all will have been worth it. So if you'll excuse me, I have to feed the freaks their slop. Oh, and gamers rise up. Colin, can I get you anything? Brian, can I refill your mold wine? Oh, thank you, Greg. Yeah, I'd love some some pie, maybe? Oh, yeah, sure. Let me serve that right up. Oh, who could that be? <laughs> All right, cool. Let, let me answer my um, uh, antique rotary phone that sits on the desk of the navigation console in right here in Nyad. Uh, hello, who's this? Hey, guys, it's Chewy from Texas. Oh, hi, Chewy. Hey, Chewy. How are you doing? Yeah, we're just sitting here having a normal podcaster's Thanksgiving. Oh, nice. Uh, well, apparently I'm homeless, so I will have to not have a Thanksgiving. So things aren't going well there? No. Not only am I homeless and living in Austin on nearby 6th Street, but now I'll have to be relocated to a more remote area in the southern area of Austin. <laughs> Chewy, is Austin dying? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends. I guess according to the certain members of Austin PD that recommend a documentary about your guys' city, I guess, yes, it is dying. Yes, uh, I think we're some of the only non-police officers to have watched that movie. Can't recommend it highly enough. Very good. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the police informed us that uh, shoplifting was just embedded in Seattle three years ago by the homeless. So I hope it hasn't reached Austin yet. No, uh, what? Yeah, this, what is this shoplifting? That sounds like a Pacific Northwest problem. <laughs> yeah, Chewy, I get any no, Never come down here. Is there still cube steak? Yes, can confirm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you've heard, shoplifting isn't a real problem there yet, but you just wait. So what's going on? <laughs> so what's going on in Austin? Well, there's always been a um, issue with uh, the homeless, I guess, and citizens there. But as of late, there's been this aggressive ramp up in what to do, quote unquote, with the homeless. So they. Recently, uh, the governor decided, I guess, that Austin wasn't doing enough. And so he started, he sent in these like teams with basically machinery, heavy machinery that can move the earth and has been driving out a lot of campus under the freeways and such. And what they've been doing is they set up a temporary location in the southeast area of Austin. And it's basically just like a plot of land and they threw some porta potties and some hand washing stations and then wow. that's the option if wow. you're drove driven out from your established little encampment under the freeway or wherever you're basically being forced to be relocated to a pre-designated spot so, which has never gone terribly in the past right <laughs> so I can't see any problems with that well you're making a camp to concentrate them in yes yeah, yeah. It's almost like, yes, a concentration of people, of a demographic in one place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, complaints about the homeless in Austin are largely, you know, center around 6th Street and a shelter there called The Arch that might be yeah. bankrolled by one Hollywood or America's sweetheart. <laughs> Jesse James? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the West Coast Choppers guy. Yeah. Just has a soft spot for the homeless. <laughs> he seems like um, But yeah. But, uh, yeah, the arch is um, – it's a complicated issue with the arch because I remember even when I was – man, I remember they built it some time ago. But they built it right – not like right in downtown in like maybe a more industrial area or an area that's pretty uh, dead by five o'clock, you know, like some like those weird pockets you can find in most downtown areas. Oh, yeah, uh, like all of downtown Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking of places like in San Antonio, there's a lot of weird fringe of downtown that no one really goes there. And that's where yeah. the shelter used to be uh, when I worked at the shelter. Uh, downtown but the, the issue with the arch is that they built it like three blocks away from sixth street which is a very famous stretch of bars and all the college kids from ut go there and it's it's, it's always just wild and there's a ton of venues and places to drink but where they built the arch uh that sprawl it, it ended up like going over these blocks over it's like more venues and bars so what happens now is that you have a shelter that's intake. So with the intake, they only have X amount of space slash beds, right? At night. Yeah. And so then there's this spillover because they there was there's not a ton of real estate down there in, in Austin, downtown Austin particularly. So you just have people loitering and sleeping and camping outside because where else would they go, right? You wait in line, you find out you can't get in for the night. Or you're not gonna 
wander around too far. And you're downtown. So the issue is you start combining concert goers, tourists, drunk college kids. And now they're literally walking and parking around this area of downtown that they turn into a homeless shelter. And it's not that big. It's not very large. But so then you have this natural conflict. So then people complain like, oh, I get accosted when I'm walking past the arch and people are just camped out or sleeping on the streets or this and that. And so I, I think that would be the genesis of this push. So the, the is that the 20 year olds and uh, desperate poverty was yeah. not a good mix is what I mean. Yeah, I know. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. When I give people an idea, I remember I was going to go see is me and actually, uh, our uh, cohort from San Antonio, Brian Duff, we're going to go see Jello Biafra in Austin in like 2004. And we saw this line that was clearly for the thing. And so we go and we get in it. And the line's just not moving at all. And we're just sitting there, we're waiting and we're waiting. And all of a sudden, this guy starts asking us all these weird questions, you know, for people going to see Jello Biafra. And we realized that we were actually in line for the arch. <laughs> that was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> just cross punks. It's cool. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. There was no differentiation in the fashion. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> it's been like an issue. It's been an issue for a while. And like supposedly, which I, I would believe is like during South by Southwest, which brings in so many out of towners, they'll kind of round up or like really, really strictly enforce they'll clean up that area, so to speak. So then all these out-of-towners and concert goers don't have to really see it or interact with anyone. And then they get, or they kind of just, after that week goes by, then they kind of stop enforcing it as much and everything returns to normal. So they kind of uh, hide things behind a curtain, so to speak, during South by Southwest. Because the arch uh, at night is like way different around that time of year. Yeah. But uh, the other issue in speaking to the the area of concentration that Greg Abbott set up is it's almost uh, somewhat in conflict with what the city itself is doing because the city just purchased a, a large facility also in the South side. And that one is not so much what they say. It's not so much the goal is going to be not so much a, like an encampment area as more of a, uh, a place that's going to offer service and offer, um, you know, temporary sleeping arrangements or kind of like a bunk uh, setup for the homeless so that they, uh, it's like a consistent place they can sleep. It's not just a dirt pit. Well, yeah. Well, and true, these are both ended up on the south side of Austin. And in Austin, like most cities, the south side's where the wealthy live, right? The wealthy. <laughs> no, it's funny that you should uh, mention that because that is not the case. I don't know how they do it in Seattle, but around these parts, poor folk live in the South. <laughs> but it's not even the, uh, like, I, I wouldn't even say it's the poor folk, because what's been happening is that the South part of Austin is where it used to be considered kind of far away, but a lot of the normal folk, like, for example, I have a friend, she's a bartender, and she used to live way closer to the center of town, and now rents are so high, and everything's getting bulldozed for condos that you'd have to make a pretty high amount of income to be able to afford to live in like the happening or like the center of Austin. So a lot of people are uh, moving South. So it's funny how they just chose to put these 
areas for the homeless in the South, considering they uh, they didn't put it north or maybe find an area downtown or in the center that was a little more conducive to that, considering all the bus routes and most public transportation is heavily centered in that area. Well, I definitely weren't going to put it next to uh, Greg Abbott's, Greg Abbott's $6 million mansion on the northwest side, I take it. No, and... <laughs> That's the, that's the funny thing, too, is like if you look at some of the um, comments from your guys' uh, sister chapter in uh, Save, Safe Austin for Everyone or the Safe Austin. Yeah, yeah, I established that. You see, yeah, I was <laughs> – this had your stink all – your reeks of you all over. <laughs> it was funny because some of the comments, which are like super like aggressive and like, oh, if I get approached, I, was, I used to be in the army, so, you know, who knows what will happen, which – that's a whole other issue, but you'll see the people and they're from these suburbs up north of Austin, like Georgetown or like these, like really in Austin, you can't really find like franchises. Like you can find a Chili's and all that, but it is pretty like unique as in it's a lot of local places, right. To eat and where you find the big franchises, the Applebee's and such is going North into like Georgetown or Round Rock. That's the suburbs. So you see these people, commenting like oh my god i was approached by a homeless person and i get the feeling it's like oh i'm sorry you went into town for what to meet a friend for coffee or i'm sorry you had to lower yourself to go into downtown austin and a homeless person had the audacity to look at you or ask you for change so it's funny that these they're almost like these tourists don't live don't live in austin proper they live in this north side but then they're the ones that are calling this threatening violence and want this call to arms where it's like you don't even live here really you're way up north no it, it, that's crazy cheery because that's definitely not exactly the situation in seattle where it's all a bunch of wieners <laughs> in bellevue complaining about the one time they drove to the city 10 years ago and how horrifying it was for them to not be in a perfectly pristinely clean suburb for a second yeah no i think it's it's not even about yeah. like driving into the city and seeing it once they never these are people who never come in but they just they they know everything they know about these cities like from fucking facebook there's no actual like first person knowledge of any of this um it's all uh it's all online which is how you get these people in the suburbs like just like Going on. It's like a mythology, like an oral history that yeah. they're all telling each other. <laughs> uh, who can forget the tale of uh, the Odyssey of Odysseus going into downtown Austin and facing the homeless sirens <laughs> and the cyclops? <laughs> the tale as old as time. The siren call, the panhandle. Well, yeah. Speaking of siren calls, Chewy, um, what what are the people of Austin looking to being landlocked? You have no island to put these people. So are, is there a spot on the river maybe that you could make a, a camp or or just, yeah, what what is the, your final solution if you uh, catch my drift? <laughs> my final solution to an area that is concentrated with a certain demographic? Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly... Not to get too much into like a, it, but uh, obviously I do not think putting everyone in this dirt pit that they cleared out far away from any bus line or any transportation or services is a good idea. 
uh, I don't know, maybe something humane like giving. There's enough space. We can uh, we can figure something out. There's plenty of examples of like campuses. I don't want to get into like when I used to work at the shelter, but you, you can find ways to make it work. If San Antonio, which is not exactly known as a cool city, can figure out ways to accommodate the homeless, and it's downtown, like in downtown, I don't see why a progressive quote unquote place like Austin can't pony up to come up with a with a solution that doesn't involve putting mentally ill and impoverished people in a dirt pit with four hand washing stations and six porta potties. Maybe we could turn Alex Jones' bunker into collective housing. <laughs> or maybe San, Sandy B can uh, pony up more money again to uh, <laughs> to invest in a in a shelter that isn't only like the size of a small Walmart, like a non-super Walmart, and not be in the middle of downtown surrounded by drunk college kids. That might yeah. help too. Well, and true, I mean, just... Or just stick them all in one place and, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. and uh, sit, yeah, get them out of sight, out of mind. So so George P. Dick comes down from Georgetown on his one once-a-year pilgrimage to Austin, doesn't have to get accosted by someone asking for a cigarette. Yeah. Well, I that mean, might work, uh, That sounds pretty cool. And it'll definitely work, too, because when you put them far away where they can't get the services and they, there's no source of, like, income or anything like that, which a lot of people are getting downtown, they're definitely not just going to go back downtown. I mean, that's not what's happened, right, Chewy? It wasn't that people just left and went back downtown. No. No, no, everyone was ecstatic about their little section of gravel that they were assigned after their prior encampment under the freeway, which wasn't really bothering anyone, got torn down yeah everyone's ecstatic about the current situation <laughs> most definitely well it's good to hear that uh things in austin are going about as well as they are in seattle it's, and that you're having a, a wonderful thanksgiving out on your own patch of dirt in texas which is all we can hope for i sound like there should be a country song called my own little patch of dirt in texas <laughs> 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 check out my new um rap album i'm gonna drop it's called i'm taking a dump in a hole i dug in the dirt because <laughs> i'm i'm in southeast austin so yeah check that out that should be dropping soon that sounds hot man yeah <laughs> yeah oh it's gonna be hot <laughs> well thanks for uh calling us true because after all thanksgiving's about family yeah and thanks for keeping austin weird <laughs> oh it's it's about to get way weirder trust me <laughs> all right guys uh hopefully i didn't go over my minutes since i'm homeless and i have to buy burner phones but i'll try and call in some other time maybe if there's a christmas special i'll call in. <laughs> all right all right take care yeah good to hear from you chewy all <laughs> right talk to you guys later Wednesday, 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 December 11th, 7 p.m. Tickets on sale now at beacon.thebeacon.film. The beacon. The beacon.film. Seattle Sucks presents One Night Only, Class of 1999. Imagine a future 1999 Seattle where the city has fallen into deindustrialized chaos. Teens rule the streets, and at Kennedy High School in Seattle's most dangerous free fire zone. You know what neighborhood we're talking about.
At Kennedy High School in Seattle's most dangerous free fire zone, the military is engaging in a radical new experiment to keep keep control in the classroom. (laughs) Starring Malcolm McDowell, Pam Greer, a guy who looks like one of the Corys, but kind of hard to figure out which one, and others. Be there or be square. Tickets on sale now at the beacon dot film. The beacon cinema. It's a theater that we like. We will be there. Yeah. Buy your tickets now. Hey, uh, is is it okay if I play the latest Moth Radio Hour for you guys? I think I've made it very clear how they, I feel about public radio. Uh, okay. Uh, all of our listeners, uh, like myself, are observing a, the strict Seattle sucks, uh, no public radio, no NPR diet. Um, no NPR November. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Um, I have been thinking, Colin. I know how much you crave that live it. storytelling. Yeah. Um, I need it. Gotta have it. And, you know, I mean, that's really, if you're cutting out public radio, that's literally like half the programming you're missing out on on your drives home. And I'm sure that's true of many of our listeners. Uh, so, um,. I'm going to come through for you. I'm going to tell you a story. Live, now. I'm going to tell it to you. What? The following is uh, basically true. Anyway, I mean, it's like my version. Uh, <laughs> you know, the weirdest parts are true. So, yeah. <laughs> like, don't hold me to, like, the exact, like, chronology or motivations of the individuals or anything like that. Yeah, but don't um, try to find the treasure in the dead of winter. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, again, if you're at any part, you're thinking, no, nah, that's not real. That's the part that's real. <laughs> this basically true story is about my family and about video bread. <gasps> Any relationship to a Videodrome? <laughs> uh, we shall see. In 1989 or so, my father decided to undertake a bit of a career change and make instructional baking videos in his own kitchen. Let me back up. My parents were boomer refugees from dirty eastern shitholes. (laughs) My mother was from Pennsylvania. Not Pittsburgh on one side, not Philadelphia on the other. The West Virginia in-between part. (laughs) My dad was from upstate New York, Rochester. These are old industrial locales. It was the mid-70s when they graduated from colleges near home. This was the era of the gas crisis, stagflation, the beginning of deindustrialization. So when they 
both immediately got jobs out of college in Houston, Texas, and moved away to start their new incredibly easy lives, they thought it was the greatest place on earth. Houston was in the middle of the oil boom, the only place in America growing instead of dying. It had big, wide boulevards, tall concrete and glass towers, no rust, decay, or visible pour. <laughs> My mom even convinced her recently divorced mother to move herself and her other children out there to Houston to start a new life. Those people and their descendants are there to this day. To be clear, Houston is a sprawling dump. <laughs> Not as ugly as Dallas, but still like a wet shit spreading out on the flat desert. Mm -hmm. It's like Dallas, but if Dallas had any culture. <laughs> yeah, so not saying much. <laughs> Soon enough, my parents met in the apartment complex where they lived. God knows what these two people had to say to each other, but presumably because they had nothing else going on and because they'd been raised to do so, they got together and promptly left my mother's family behind in favor of Los Angeles. <laughs> Still there to this day. <laughs> you know, you hear sometimes about these like settlers who are going like across, you know, to the to Oregon or whatever. And some parts of the family would get like too sick and they just like leave them somewhere like in fucking Indiana or something. And they just yep. live there forever. Th this is that story. It's a modern version of that story. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, uh, My dad, who'd been working as a financial analyst for an oil company or two in Houston, was fired for missing work one day to go to the beach and showing up the next day, quote, red like a lobster and stinking of scotch, according to the man himself. <laughs> <laughs> so he got another corporate accounting type job out in California. My mother, who was a nurse, just walked into the hospital nearest their apartment and probably started working that day. At some point, uh, no idea what year, actually, they were married. Uh, I was born somewhere along the line. Uh, they moved around, found Seattle and its suburbs somehow. All the while, my old man was working at various oil defense and technology firms from which he would either get fired or get bored and quit, presumably for feeling not properly appreciated or challenged. By the mid-80s, he seems to have moved away from taking permanent positions altogether in favor of contract consulting. Uh, you know, the kind of job you might nonetheless want to be hired on full-time at the end of if it went well. He doesn't seem to have taken any of those offers if they ever came. Even so, you can imagine this corporate accountant and this nurse feeling like they're more or less on the rise at this time. So in 1988, soon after my sister was born, they bought an absurdly large, fairly ugly 70s split entry in the affluent suburb of Bothell with its good schools and leafy neighborhoods. And then a funny thing happened. <laughs> <laughs> my father began to ponder with ever greater obsession, that quintessential American drive, his own entrepreneurial spirit. 
He was tired of working under people I'm guessing he thought were dumber than him. He was tired of making money for other people, to quote the man himself. There's so many ways to start your own business, even back then in the dark times before the internet. You could buy a ready-made franchise. You could invent something useful and license it, you know, like on Shark Tank. <laughs> or you could transform a lifelong passion into something useful and profitable. When I told you he made instructional baking videos, you likely imagined some version of this. A man with a lifelong love of baking bread, <laughs> the expertise he's gained over that time, and a desperate need to share it with the world. <laughs> Greg's household smelling of <laughs> rice leavened bread. And, yeah. You're picturing a passionate sort, perhaps even an artist. No. No. <laughs> this is an accountant we're talking about. Not a square peg crammed by society's expectations into a round hole. A natural-born accountant. <laughs> someone who understands business, profit. Not someone who's going to get carried away by a passionate idea. Unless the fundamentals are sound. So he's a Ferengi? <laughs> 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 oh, God. His goal was to create something, literally anything, a fucking widget of any kind, which he could manufacture himself alone, with no employees, no vendors, virtually no overhead, and then sell himself in the same fully integrated, insular manner. <laughs> what drives a man to this purest expression of entrepreneurialism? God only knows. He entertained a lot of ideas, too many to recount here. Eventually, he settled on his VHS camcorder. Here was a device which he already owned and used for its intended home video purpose. It occurred to him that it could be used to create an original product to which only he would have the rights. And here's the best part. To mass-produce that product, all you need is a few VCRs from Sears. He found he could buy blank tapes in bulk and dupe them four at a time with a stack of VCRs and a distribution amp from Radio Shack. <laughs> what I'm trying to impress upon you guys is that this man, my father, arrived at and committed to the idea of selling a video before knowing what that video would be. <laughs> because of the simplicity of the production process. Literally a, a fucking uh, George Bluth story from like Arrested <laughs> Development. <laughs> Kid fights or whatever. <laughs> Indeed. He thought through lots of ideas. Bad ones, no doubt. Until one day, as I imagine it, he must have been in the den of the massive 70s split entry he and his family lived in when he looked at the kitchen in a way he never had before. You see, these two rooms, the kitchen and the den, were nearly one room, separated only by a long bar-style counter topped with gold formica. Beyond the counter, on the far wall, was the dark filigreed brass-handled cabinetry surrounding a central oven and stove. You know, 
like a goddamn cooking show. So again, he settles on the kitchen before even on bread. How he comes to bread in the end, I don't really know, but we can infer from what we do know that it was some cost-benefit analysis and not some primal yearning for yeast. (laughs) So, he taught himself to bake. The man's idea was to make and sell a video wherein he would represent himself as an expert, a teacher, a guide to bread baking. But first, he would have to teach himself to bake. (laughs) You know what they say, if you teach yourself to bake. (laughs) Did this obsessive people-averse entrepreneur take a class? No, he read books. He employed the, quote, scientific method and took heavy notes while experimenting with all the cookbooks from the library. Anyway, it worked. He learned uh, sufficient to be confident to sell this expertise to the masses. He then took over this section of the house, shot a video once through, edited it all in camera. If you can call it editing at all, picture a balding accountant with navigator frames and an apron over a Lacoste polo. This, this is 1989. Video bread, as he called it, has several segments. There's bread, of course, but also cinnamon rolls, pies, and crucially, pizza. After some trial and error, he discovered he could cold call libraries all over the U.S. and Canada and sell them multiple copies of his educational programming for like $60 a 90-minute video. It's honestly a little genius. <laughs> uh, you're telling me. Over the next decade, he would produce several more videos, often merely rehashes and expansions of earlier material, and always pizza-heavy, as those (laughs) sold the best. This was the 90s, after all. (laughs) Did you know you can make a large pepperoni pizza at home, no industrial oven needed, for around $1.50 when you buy in bulk, while Domino's charges up to $20? (laughs) (laughs) But for him... It's always been about the sale. Investing in new material was a necessity only undertaken when he had already sold the ones he had to any libraries who would buy them. This is all my father has done for work since at least 1991. He just completed and is now selling on DVD (laughs) to libraries in 2019 the newest updates to his catalog. They are by far the lowest production value material (laughs) he has ever put out, having learned long ago that the people who actually buy them will never watch them. (laughs) Still, he has insisted all this time that he gets fan mail and that people are very grateful for his no frills, just an accountant telling you the science of proving yeast approach and that people have really learned to bake. Indeed, since learning himself, he's never gone more than a few days without baking bread or pizza, and I myself have done quite a bit of both. Colin's had my pizza. That's good. Is it? That's good. How's the crust? I remember it being good. It's been a long time. But this was a story about my family, so I'll leave you with this. 
If you find and watch the original video bread today, you will see my father as described in the very kitchen, which was only just last month torn out of the house I grew up in. <laughs> but halfway through, somewhere between, I don't know, dinner rolls and blueberry muffins, the setting inexplicably changes after a recipe insert on a dry erase board. <laughs> <laughs> Dad is now in a new, somewhat less perfectly appointed kitchen with a dining room table cleverly replacing the counter as a <laughs> uh, foreground workspace. You'd never know it, but this change of venue actually represents a major hiccup in the production. You see, the new kitchen belonged to my Aunt Nancy, my dad's sister, in her home in Las Vegas. Because evidently... As far as I can guess, this whole affair was the last straw in my parents' marriage. <laughs> well, Greg, that was illuminating. Um, and in, in a similar spirit, I guess, I would like to share a tradition that's been passed down in my family, um, which is every Thanksgiving, we all come together and we say the things that we're all sorry for. And so, I mean, <laughs> the first one for me is always, I'm just so sorry for party rocking. <laughs> um, I'm sorry... Or I'd like to apologize to Ari Hoffman. I'm not sure what I did to hurt you. I warned you about the cup full of poop, not to eat it, that it was poop. Uh, but you blocked me on Twitter anyways. And I, I'm sure it was me and not you. And I'm sorry. And I hope that we can, how can we come back together? We had a great friendship and I hope that we can, we can, you know, meet back up again in the middle somewhere. That's beautiful, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, you're looking at me. Was I supposed to prepare something? We, well, uh, I don't know. Sorry? All right, Greg, if you can't come up with anything, uh, man, um, geez, I, I mean, where to start, really? Uh, I'm sorry that uh, I didn't realize Alex Peterson was making a nest above my nook um, before the election. There are probably some steps that I could have taken had I known, but it's too late now, and um, his thousand-year reign of terror will begin shortly. So I'm <laughs> very sorry about that. Well, um, so much to be sorry for this year, Colin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Boeing and the Gates Foundation, sorry to both you guys, because I'm sure that my job somehow relies on you, <laughs> and uh, please don't fire me. <laughs> but most of all, I'm sorry to little Jeff Bezos. Um, I'm sorry for saying that your penis is corkscrew-shaped <laughs> like a duck's. <laughs> I don't know that. And it was mean of me to say. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Jeff. Mm. 
Still nothing. You guys are you guys are looking uh, at me again. Like I, if I I mean yeah, you gonna have to give me some more time. I I mean this is this will require introspection. Um, it's not something that I tackle every day. All right. Well, so sorry for that. I've got one out of left field. I just want to say, um, Katie Katie Herzog, if you're listening, I. I definitely don't want to say sorry. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could address one to the fans of the doors out there, <laughs> it was wrong of me to say. Oh, that, dad, if you're listening, <laughs> it was wrong of me to say that if somebody's a fan of the doors, that you should <laughs> legally be allowed to crush their skull with a rock. That was heat of the moment. Passions were high. Just because you listen to a band that is literally for children uh, does not mean that you're a stupid <laughs> child baby. Um, so, you know, I apologize. Uh, please go back to listening to your dumb circus music. Yeah. Guys, I still haven't thought of anything. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I would like to apologize again for really harping on Our Lady of the Bus Lane. I know that she has been a profound inspiration on a lot of people, and we were very, very, very hard on on that particular uh, demigod, deity, um, <laughs> um, miracle worker. So I apologize again. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry to my fellow patrons at the Cinnabar at Montlake Terrace. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Uh, I'm sorry for bringing Greg to the film so that he could loudly eat his food and scoff at literally everything on screen for two hours. While I find his reaction to those coke uh independent films or whatever at the beginning uh introduced by olivia wilde director of book smart smart yeah um well i find his reactions to those to be funny those kids are trying their best <laughs> <laughs> okay guys i really thought the point of this segment was that colin was going to apologize for a bunch of stuff because that's obviously his department <laughs> that's been well established i don't i'm actually okay, baffled that fine greg i got i got one this. more unless brian if you have more we can just keep keep going okay so i would i would really like to apologize for all of seattle um every time that i visited the troll and performed the ritual i didn't really realize that it would make Christopher Rufo write all of those things. Um, <laughs> I didn't believe it, and uh, I'm sorry. I should not have fed Christopher Rufo <laughs> after midnight. Yeah. <laughs> I got him wet. I got him wet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only we could take him back. Well, it's been a wonderful Thanksgiving, Greg, and I feel the tryptophan is kicking in. Yeah, all those turkey gobbler sandwiches we just ate. <laughs> 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 okay. All right. Uh, yeah. So thanks. Thank you for 
thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there to the end of this. Yeah. Uh, what I assume is a yeah. three-hour <laughs> epic or something. Yeah, we hope you're having a wonderful Thanksgiving alone in your apartment, <laughs> as our research says all of our <laughs> listeners are doing. Yeah. So thank you, and we will we will catch you again soon. And we definitely want to see you at the Beacon on December 11th. December yeah, 11th. tickets are on right. sale. Go get after that. Yeah, come on the out. Beacon.film. And mm-hmm. again, reminder, very special yes. um, Patreon episode this week to come out uh, a couple days after this one on the Patreon for the price of a Starbucks latte, uh, market price. Mm-hmm. Um, a very special episode for the... Uh, where we have a panel of uh, academics and experts uh, to talk about the 20th anniversary of the WTO uprising and Mm -hmm. um, also a very stupid movie about it called Battle in Seattle. But it's legit. Check it out. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.